Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, glad you're with us on the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Your vacation is officially over. I know some people went back last week and some people wish they were still on vacation. But uh, just as far as I know, Jim, I think every school's back in and uh, pretty much every excuse to no longer be at work is is gone. So uh, officially, welcome back. Yeah, I know you and I were back on Thursday, but uh, back to the grind, everybody. It was fun. Yeah, we had about two snow flurries here in Fairfax County yesterday afternoon, and my sons were like, "Snow, school will be canceled." I'm like, "No, no, it's not." And apparently, we're supposed to have a mild winter, so back to school, kids. <laughs> you know, we got a whole week until you know, uh, is it Martin Luther King Day's mid January. Yeah, two weeks from now, I think. Yeah. Two weeks from now, a whole a whole full week of school. How are you gonna help cope with that after <laughs> 17 days off? Exactly right. But there is, of course, uh, playoff football for uh, games over the weekend. And uh, I had just finished watching uh, the Seahawks get a first down that salted away the game against the Eagles, uh, put the girls to bed, came back down. Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth are doing the wrap-up. I picked up something to read, wasn't really paying attention. And because I didn't change the channel, the Golden Globes come on. And um, I'm like, oh, I'm not going to watch this. And then they say, here's your host, Ricky Gervais. I'm like, oh, wait, I think I do want to see this opening monologue just to see uh, if he's going to tweak Hollywood. And yes, he really tweaked Hollywood. And before we start here, Jim, because sometimes conservative have a, has a tendency to do this, uh, Ricky Gervais is not a conservative. It's not someone we should necessarily put up on a pedestal. But uh, he let Hollywood have it last night. So for this particular performance, for the most part, uh, he deserves quite a bit of credit. There were some definitely distasteful parts in there. But uh, the parts we're going to look at here, uh, looking at Hollywood hypocrisy and, and, and so forth. Four clips here, uh, starting with this one, talking about the important people in the room. In this room are some of the most important TV and film executives in the world. People from every background, but they all have one thing in common. They're all terrified of Ronan Farrow. And he wasn't done on that topic, which we'll get to in a little bit, because it wasn't in the monologue. But uh, later in the monologue, he talked about a very popular show on Netflix and tied it into one of uh, the most entertaining uh, memes and conspiracy theories of the past year. You could binge watch the entire first season of Afterlife instead of watching this show. That, that's a show about a man who wants to kill himself because his wife dies of cancer. And it's still more fun than this, okay? <laughs> Spoiler alert, um, season two is on the way, so in the end, he obviously didn't kill himself. Just like Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> Shut up! I know he's your friend, but I don't care. Uh, Jim, and then he talked about uh, how Apple was getting into the uh, streaming game with uh, shows like The Morning Show. Apple roared into the, the TV game with The Morning Show. A superb drama, yeah. A superb drama about the importance of dignity and doing the right thing, made by a company that runs sweatshops in China. So, well, you say you're woke, but the companies you work for, I mean, unbelievable. Apple, Amazon, Disney. If ISIS started a streaming service, you'd call your agent, wouldn't you? So, if you do win an award tonight, don't use it as a, a platform to make a political speech, right? You're in no position to lecture the public about anything. You know nothing about the real world. Most of you spent less time in school than Greta Thunberg. And so finally, uh, the very, at the very end of the show, this is well after the monologue, introducing his final presenter, which was Sandra Bullock, he made this joke. Our next presenter starred in Netflix's Bird Box, a movie where people survive by acting like they don't see a thing. Sort of like working for Harvey Weinstein. 
You did it. You, I didn't. You did it. So, Jim, no stone left unturned there, pretty much. Uh, Hollywood uh, getting skewered for its uh, obsession with self-importance. It's a reminder of the way comedy in many ways is supposed to be done. The conservatives, uh, many of whom probably didn't know much about Ricky Gervais, and I still don't, I must say, uh, were pretty amazed at just how direct and ruthless he was last night. Yeah, and let me put up, when I, I was not watching the Golden Globes, I was, however, checking my phone and on Twitter, this pe- unsurprisingly, people in our world, the people I follow, conservative writers, conservative, you know, particularly folks who have a little bit of interest in, in the entertainment world, the Christian Totos of the world, they were loving it. And there was a part of this like, ah, okay, you know, look, as we pointed out, Ricky Gervais doesn't care who he insults or who he offends. One of his jokes uh, took shot at the Pope. Uh, this is not a guy who is a down-the-line traditional conservative, and I don't know if I like the idea of all of us saying, yay, we love Ricky now, you know, because of who he made fun of. Having said that, you want to talk about the phrase speaking truth to power. Um, when, you know, when all the Weinstein stuff came out a little over two years ago, the Oscars were about a month or two later, and the entire, re- and everyone said they wore black, they wore the black ribbons, the buttons that said time's up, and it was this really weird reaction of, Something terrible has happened, but we Hollywood celebrities have declared that it's unacceptable now after going on for decades and you should, this needs to end America. You there in the audience, you should feel ashamed of it. Why should we feel, we weren't working with Harvey Weinstein, right? Everybody in Hollywood was working with Harvey Weinstein. We didn't know about this stuff, but apparently everybody in Hollywood did. Um, And so there was kind of this, very self-congratulatory patting on the back uh, uh, atmosphere to those Oscars back then. And the following year, there was no mention of it. It was done. It, 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 you know, as far as Hollywood was concerned, the entire issue of sexual harassment, sexual abuse, exploitation of people, all that kind of stuff, no, it was all, all fixed, all resolved, issue went away. Well, last night, Ricky Gervais gave us exactly what we wanted to hear. This was the, oh, no, it's not. And oh, by the way, no, there really hasn't been a reckoning. No, there really hasn't been accountability. Guys like Matt Damon, who had their career built by Harvey Weinstein, could say, oh, I I just knew he was a womanizer. I didn't know about any of this stuff. It was deeply satisfying. It really was enjoyable. I mean, making a crack about sweatshops in Apple when Tim Cook of CEO of Apple is in the audience, that takes cojones. <laughs> uh, so by the end of it, I was like, all right, Ricky Jarvis, you, you deserve, you know, you, my hat is off to you. That took guts. That was... Uh, uh, absolutely something that needed to be said. I'm sure a lot of that stung. I'm sure we've already seen the the gifts of the likes of Tom Hanks uh, kind of wrinkling their nose in, in disapproval of, of where the monologue was going. Um, a good way to summarize it, Greg, is my understanding is that that's probably the sixth time uh, Ricky Jarvis, maybe the fifth time that he was hosting Golden Globes, and he was trying really hard to make sure that he wouldn't be asked for a sixth time. <laughs> yeah, he said over and over again, this is the last time. I just don't care. I just don't care. And I didn't know he was going to go to all those different places. The fact that he mentioned Jeffrey Epstein was uh, absolutely epic. But when he when he started with saying, I drove here in a, in a limousine whose license plate was made by Felicity Huffman, I had a feeling that the gloves were coming off and uh, it was worth watching there for the next seven or eight minutes. But um Anyway, Hollywood, hopefully a little bit less self-important today. Didn't really uh, change a lot. Some of the acceptance speeches uh, were still very political and so forth. But uh, 
At least it at least it got said. But uh, you know, Jim, in addition to us, and I know you do a, a pop culture podcast. There's uh, another podcast that talks a lot about the SJW culture, the woke culture that Hollywood loves to be part of. It's a brand new podcast uh, out of Radio America. In addition to ours, that you should listen to, by the way, not instead of uh, called the Mock and Daisy Common Sense Cast. Uh, two ladies known as Chicks on the Right, Mock and Daisy, and uh, each week they go through a lot of different things. Uh, Usually there's some sort of a political tinge, but not necessarily. They talk about a lot of uh, cultural events as well. They talk about uh, things from parenting to social media, uh, the dangers of uh, politically correct culture, and the importance of marriage, men, and family values uh, in a crazy world. And as we uh, saw last night, uh, uh, the world is plenty crazy. Uh, and as we'll get into in our next couple of martinis, it's plenty crazy. So uh, Mock and Daisy, they don't take themselves too seriously. They like to joke around a lot. Uh, a couple of conservative moms uh, with a dash of politics. But uh, uh, they, they believe that making America great again starts in their own home. So go to chicksontheright.com. Start listening on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting platform. And, of course, if you want to subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch, we encourage you to do so at iTunes or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, also to leave us a great review there. We always appreciate those, and it helps us out a lot. So, Jim, let's turn to our bad martini now. And uh, as we said at the end of the week, the fact that uh, Qasem Soleimani, the now former head of the uh, Iraqi Quds Force, is dead and was taken out is a good thing. Uh, What it brings next, though, is still an open question. Uh, Iran is now flying the red revenge flag above one of its uh, key mosques there. And so, you know, they're rattling the saber rhetorically, at least. And of course, uh, when that happens, President Trump is not going to play second fiddle to rhetorical saber rattling. So in response to the threats from Iran, Trump is tweeting over the weekend. He said in a series of tweets, Iran is talking very boldly about targeting certain USA assets as revenge for our ridding the world of their terrorist leader who had just killed an American and badly wounded many others, not to mention all of the people he had killed over his lifetime, including recently hundreds of Iranian protesters. He was already attacking our embassy and preparing for additional hits in other locations. Iran has been nothing but problems for many years. Let this serve as a warning that if Iran strikes any Americans or American assets, we have targeted 52 Iranian sites, representing the 52 American hostages taken by Iran many years ago, some at a very high level and important to Iran and the Iranian culture. And those targets in Iran itself will be hit very fast and very hard. The USA wants no more threats. And so uh, coming back to the White House on Sunday, the president reiterated that cultural sites uh, are on the table as a possible retaliation, depending on what Iran is uh, willing and planning to do against the United States in response for taking out Soleimani. So, uh, Jim, a lot of blowback on uh, uh, a couple different sides here on, on the cultural sites. Some say that's just bluster and that the 52 sites are really things like refineries and, and missile plants and, and nuclear facilities and so forth. But uh, what do you make of how the president's uh, handling the trash talking portion of the aftermath here? Yeah, I'm, it's deeply frustrating, Greg, unless he really thinks that there's a culturally uh, resonant uh, oil platform. Or some sort of, you know, deeply spiritual oil refinery uh, that has always played a key role in the daily life of Iranian. Now, you know, look, for those, oh, for those who are listeners who are thinking, oh, there goes Jim again, bashing Trump. Look, I have a, a piece on both NRO and in today's Morning Jolt talking about this. I think on balance, hitting Soleimani was the right decision. I think that in the long term, this will make the world a safer place. I don't know if in the short term and make the world a safer place because Iran is going to want to retaliate somehow. Now, the interesting thing is, is that so far Iran has announced they're pulling out of the, the, the nuclear deal, but they already weren't pulling out of the, the nuclear deal. It's not that big a change. The only thing is that they're no longer pretending to go along with it. Um, 
you know, there's a lot of furious rhetoric. Uh, CNN is breathlessly reporting that Iranians are marching in the streets chanting death to America. Uh, often they call that Friday in Iran. That's, <laughs> that's generally what happens after Friday prayers in, in, in Tehran. But having said that, by bringing the word cultural into it, like if, if the United States decides to hit Iranian military sites, airfields, military bases, barracks, fuel depots, um, uh, you know, everything that makes the Iranian military run, secret police headquarters, secret police stations, you know, all the guys who are in charge of beating the people in the streets uh, when there's an uprising in Iran, like we saw in 2017 and in 2009, those are all perfectly legitimate military targets that nobody in the world is going to object to. If you start bombing shrines or mosques or pilgrimage sites or something like that, then all of a sudden the whole world's going to get mad at you. And then all of a sudden you end up kind of looking like the Taliban blowing up those Buddhas in Afghanistan. That's not really what we're about in the United States. And what's more, I mean, again, our argument is with the Iranian regime, not with the Iranian people. And the second thing is, in fact, probably of anything that would galvanize the Iranian people to support the regime more, um, that would basically say to you, hey, we're your enemy because we're blowing up these things that are really important to you. The thing is, is I also, like, I, I, my understanding is that there are folks who are already, you know, speaking uh, off the record to reporters saying that people in the Pentagon don't like this idea, don't like this plan. Iran does not have a shortage of completely legitimate uh, targets that, oh, by the way, would degrade and de- the Iranian military capacity to counterattack. So take out their air defense systems and, and all that stuff. Do cyber attacks if you want uh, on all that stuff, but focus it on the Iranian regime. Don't focus on the Iranian people. And it's deeply frustrating. And of course, once the president was, was challenged on this or questioned on this, he doubled down because this is what he does. Look, he's done something that I think could make the Middle East a better place than the wrong one. He would be better off getting off of this point instead of harping on it and painting himself as the villain in the eyes of everybody in the Middle East. Yeah, it's very interesting. I'm trying to figure out if he's trying to convince the Iranian people, not that the Mullahs would necessarily listen to them, or or maybe the Mullahs themselves, that uh, it would be an extremely demoralizing thing. Let them believe that that would happen, even even though he's not. I can't imagine that those would be on the on the military's list of prime targets, like you said, there'd be many things that are far more important. And and hopefully in some way, it's a, it's a deterrent. But I think the, the taking out of Suleimani is probably the biggest deterrent. Uh, what did you make of the uh, uh, liberal media folks, I think probably more than liberal politicians, looking at the size of the uh, protests in Tehran and saying, oh, the Iranian people are really fired up. It's kind of hard to tell since uh, it's almost mandatory that you show up to these things. I was about to say, I can't pretend to be an Iran policy expert. But that having said, I've been, you know, I lived out in Turkey for a couple of years back, about a decade back. God, time flies, Greg. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I've been, you know, writing about and covering the Middle East, you know, uh, in, in Iran as a part of that going back for a whole bunch of years. Um, this is what the Iranian regime does. This is what they're really good at, right? When you need a big public rally and you need everybody in to get out there and to chant and to have their banners and to chant death to America, this, that's the bread and butter of the Iranian regime. This is what they do. This is what they do really well. So on the one, Tom Friedman had actually a really good, a surprisingly good column. I say that as not a big fan of Tom Friedman. He, he may have won some of our end of the year awards uh, back then because, you know, <laughs> his columns always begin with, so I was climbing Mount Kilimanjaro with a tech company CEO. <laughs> anyway, Friedman's column, he points out, is like in the Middle East, what matters is not the day after. What matters is the day after the day after. I mean, yes, we know Iranian, the, the Iranians are going to be outraged about this. We know Iranian pride has been, uh, punctured and their nationalism is going to swell and all that kind of stuff. But what really matters after that, say a week from now, say two weeks from now, at some point when this initial emotional response turns off, you know, it, it run, the, the fire burns itself out, so to speak. 
Um, afterwards, the Iranian people start asking, well, what did Soleimani get us? Right? What, what, was, what was he actually doing? He was basically trying to create pro-Iran militias in Lebanon and Syria and Yemen and even over in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And so, and of course, obviously in Iraq. And you know, what did that do? Well, it meant there were a whole bunch of Iraqis who hated the Iranians. It meant there were a whole bunch of Syrians who hate the Iranians. There are a whole bunch of Lebanese who hate the Iranians. And there are a whole bunch of Yemenis who hate the Iranians. In other words, once you've created these, this is see, this is both the genius of Soleimani and also the question of, all right, what, what are you getting from this? You're turning yourself into the colonial power that everybody in this region already hates. That's the one thing America's figured out. We don't really want to be a colonial power. We keep kind of getting shoved into that role, but we don't want to. We don't want to nation build. We don't want to administrate. We want to let these countries go up as long as you're not funding terrorists that want to kill us. We're pretty laid back about how you want to run your country. Um, but this is, you know, so, so Iran was, you know, actually this Soleimani policy, was he expanding Iranian influence in the region? Absolutely. Was he also creating a lot of enemies along the way? Yes. Um, and so the Iranians may actually decide, you know what? We're better off without Soleimani. This is our chance to pivot. This is our chance to change what we're doing in this because what we're doing is also creating more enemies all around the Middle East. And as they're seeing at this particular moment, sure, Russia's you know, saying this is a terrible move. Sure, China's saying this is a terrible move. You notice Russia and China aren't offering to send any weapons. The Russian and Chinese governments don't want to actually get involved in this. They realize what a hornet's nest this is. So Iran is actually pretty darn isolated. And oh, by the way, another point of the morning jolt today, the Iranian economy is in the toilet. Um, I mean, way worse than the U.S. economy at the height of the Great Recession. Unemployment is 17 percent. Their economy, their GDP apparently shrunk close to 10 percent last year. The currency's crashing. Cost of living's growing up. Oil exports are shrinking. Iran is in a really rough place right now. This may actually mitigate their response to this. and They may not want to actually escalate. And I'm sure right now in Iranian circles, they're trying to figure out what kind of response can we send to the United States that says, how dare you? But isn't so bad that it actually escalates with a president who is known for being, you know, rather unpredictable about these things. All right. Well, let's move on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And of course, uh, we're officially into 2020 now. It's less than a month until the Iowa caucuses, February 3rd, the first vote in the country. And uh, the field is getting smaller, should be even smaller than it is. But nonetheless, uh, some of those getting out are offering endorsements. And the latest to do so is former HUD secretary Julian Castro. In a new video for the Elizabeth Warren campaign, uh, he is officially endorsing Warren, which is not a huge surprise and is probably not very consequential. But Jim, the cringeworthy aspects of this video, and I think they're even more cringeworthy when you watch it, are really something to behold. Uh, I said in our email today that even Aaron Sorkin would probably say, nobody really talks like that uh, in Washington. And, uh, and so what happens here is uh, Julian Castro spends a minute out of this three-minute video without even mentioning Elizabeth Warren, talking about how his mother and grandmother and a bunch of other women have been a very important part of his life over the years. And then he starts talking about what we need in a president. And lo and behold, he's ringing the doorbell of Elizabeth Warren. They go into her kitchen where she did the famous, uh, oh, I think I'm going to go get a beer uh, thing from earlier in the campaign. And he sits there and uh, for a long time talks about how wonderful she is. So here's an extended clip of them supposedly just talking one-on-one -on -one in the kitchen about where this campaign's going. You know, I started my campaign off and we lived true to the idea that we want an America where everyone counts. It's the same vision that I see in you, in yeah. your campaign, it's in true. the America that you would help bring about. Nobody is working harder than you are, not only in meeting people, but listening to people and also bringing the goods and saying, okay, this, this is what I'm going to do about it. 
the thing I hear the most from people in the selfie lines is hope. Hope. Yeah. Because we know what's broken, we know how to fix it, we're building a movement to get it done. It takes a great president. It also takes the people behind Yes, it does. So that's what you're summoning. Yeah. The energy of the people matched with a strong, positive vision for change in our country. That's what it's going to take to win mm-hmm. in 2020. Jim, that seems just so completely inauthentic. If he had just said that, speaking to the camera, here's why I'm endorsing Elizabeth Warren, it would have come across more genuine. In the end, he was polling 1% or 2%, so this won't really matter. But the fake aspect of it produced here by the Warren campaign uh, really stands out to me. You know, Greg, I mean, the first question that comes to my mind as uh, listening to that is, you know, is this going to shift Julian Castro's percent to support Warren? <laughs> Singular. I, I assume it was up to 1%. It, it certainly wasn't up to that threshold. or something. I mean, I'm sure in the back of her mind, Elizabeth Warren is looking at this and saying, ah, well, with Julian Castro supporting me, okay, that gets me one more vote in Texas. Two if you count his twin brother. Or maybe maybe it was a twin brother for all we know. It's, it's hard to tell them apart. But anyway, you could also tell the subtext of this, this entire statement is, please pick me as your running mate. Please, please pick me as your running mate. At the very least, tell me I'm getting something good in your cabinet. Don't stick me in hot again. Give me something important to do. Look, maybe there's not a lot of good, easy ways to, to make a, an endorsement video like this compelling and interesting. Is it surprising that Castro endorsed her? Eh, I guess, sort of, kind of. You know, he, he'd always taken that pretty darn progressive tack. He, had, he, you know, as we were discussing this last week, I think he was basically trying to run in the lane that, that Warren and Sanders have pretty much occupied. I don't think she's likely to pick him as the running mate. I don't think Julian Castro can carry you Texas. If the argument is like, oh, you know, he'll help bring out the Latinos. The Latinos have not come out for him to be president in the Democratic primary. Um, I went back and I checked and he was not getting high numbers amongst Latinos in any of the early primary states. So I, I don't really know what he does for her. And the whole thing just comes across as a very stiff and, and you know, reading the talk, memorize. I think it reveals, actually, Greg, that these folks spend so much time on the campaign trail, doing their interviews, doing their town halls, giving their speeches, that I think they speak in canned talking points, even when they're trying to have a normal conversation. Greg, ask me how the weather is. How's the weather, Jim? You know, we're having dark days right now, Greg. Things are cloudy. People are scared. People don't know what the, what's going to come tomorrow. But I believe that we can bring sunnier skies. I believe that by working together, we can change the climate in this country and change the climate in the world. You know, they can't just say, oh, you know, it's sunny outside. <laughs> this strikes me as one of those awkward scenes. 24 used to do this once in a while. Uh, I've heard that uh, one of the Star Wars characters is like this, where the only purpose that they have is to reset the plot because uh, a few developments have happened and you need to kind of condense it into a scene to make sure all your all your viewers are up to speed. She's still calling it a selfie line, though, Jim. I think that's probably what most people will be outraged about. Yeah, and you're not, you're <laughs> not taking the picture. It's not a selfie. You're posing for pictures with other people. Well, Jim, as we were recording this, uh, the news broke that John Bolton's willing to uh, testify in the Senate trial if subpoenaed. So it's going to be a really quiet, calm week here in Washington and beyond. So. Wait, impeachment? Oh, man, I forgot about that. A lot of folks did. Hey, they still haven't sent over the articles yet, so be patient. Jim, see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And be sure to tune in again on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.